Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Throughout your whole career journey, you'll be thinking about growing your skills, advancing, changing, and even reinventing yourself. We want to help you do that, and we want to help you live your full potential. In every episode, we cover work and career topics that leverage my global HR leadership, and through interviews and discussions with other career experts and leaders from all over the world. Subscribe and visit us at modern-career.com and see our blog posts, career stories. We also offer coaching and workshops and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to the Freelance Future. Our guest today is John Younger. John is an HR thought leader, author, advisor, board member, and an early-stage investor in HR tech startups. His current emphasis is agile talent, the freelance revolution, and the future of work. He's the author of three books, Agile Talent, HR from the Outside In, and HR Transformation. He's also written many articles in hbr.org, Talent Quarterly, and other journals. And he's the author of the Forbes Careers blog, Freelance Revolution. John is also a lecturer at the University of Michigan, the Indian School of Business, and the Copenhagen School of Business. He is the former lead HR partner of the RBL Group, the Novations Group, and was the former SVP of HR and Chief Learning and Talent Officer at National City Corp, a top five U.S. bank. John is a former advisory board member and HR transformation advisor to the government of Singapore. He received his PhD from the University of Toronto and currently lives with his family in New York City. Thank you so much, John, for joining us this morning and sharing your insights. Thank you so much. I must tell you, I wish my mother were alive to hear that Aww, introduction. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. She wouldn't have believed it for a second, but it would oh, have been on. a big smile on her face. Oh, come on. So, John, you've been researching and practicing in this broad field of strategic human resources for quite some time. And I'm guessing, you know, even as back as far as your PhD. How did you first get into this space? Or, you know, was it that focused a journey or, or like most of us, a bit meandering? And what inspired you to focus on HR, on talent, on the areas that you have? You know, three or four things. The first was everybody's got sort of a funny origin story around why they decided to do what they do. Mine was working in a shower curtain factory in Brooklyn, New York in 1968, I think. And I was one of three packers in the shower curtain factory. How old were you? Had to be, you know. Oh, I, I think I was 17 or wow. 18. And Mary, it was a very interesting thing. The three of us who were packers decided that we would work more productively if we worked collaboratively. And so we created a fire line moving, packing, and then moving the boxes into the truck. The assistant manager of the shower curtain factory, whose name I don't remember, walked over and said, what are you guys doing? And I was the obnoxious college student to try to explain the value of what we were doing, at which point you can imagine what he said. I think his exact quote was, when I want you to work more productively, I'll damn well tell you. Until then, do the job the way I said. And you know, it was one of those moments of Cohen, right? This sort of instant understanding that there was something more to be done here than just sort of take that crap. That led me to university. University led me to graduate school. And while I was trained as a social psychologist, my interest was always around people in the workplace. Hmm. So there you go. I love that. 
Thank you. Yeah. And you have obviously, you've been in the traditional organizational career path. You've been an entrepreneur. You've been, you've done so many things. Take us just maybe the highlights of the journey. Sure. I had the privilege of 10 years working at Exxon Corporation. If I sort of step back, and I know that an awful lot of people are not at all happy with Exxon because of its sort of historical views around climate, and that's very fair. For me as an employee at Exxon, as a young consultant at Exxon in the area of organization development, it was 10 wonderful years of being asked to work progressively on more and more interesting and challenging issues. There were always one or two organizations in every generation that were doing especially interesting work in HR and in organization development specifically. So for example, in the 60s and in the early 70s, it was Exxon, then it was PepsiCo, GM was doing some interesting stuff at one point, Intel was doing great stuff at some point, and I know some of your prior organizations were doing some really great stuff at GE, etc. I happened to catch the, the wind with Exxon, had eight jobs in 10 years, and ended up running a consulting team working around the world in the polymers industry in Exxon Chemical. It was terrific. From there, I had the pleasure of working with Norm Smallwood, and Norm and I had been partners on and off for the last 35 or 40 years, starting at Exxon, then at the Novations Group, then at the RBL Group, which he started with Dave Ulrich. And Norm has always been as much of a, a mentor to me as I guess I've been to him. We kind of grew up together in this stuff. Third, Dave Ulrich. What can you say about Dave? I mean, the Ulrich model continues to influence about 85% of HR organizations. He's really been a phenomenon within the HR community. And the last, if I may send a, a nod to somebody, is a gentleman called Herb Shepard. Herb was one of the founders of the National Training Labs and NTL, and was somebody that just was involved in an awful lot of important stuff, like the creation of the Yale School of Management. It was he that was one of the early deans of that school and brought a whole bunch of people together to make that happen. I had, like so many people in, in this field, the, the chance to stand on the shoulders and sit at the knee of some of the greats in this field. And what it gave me was a, an extraordinary respect for the people working in the HR field, but also a frustration about the lack of speed with which HR learns, grows, and actually transforms as a strategic source of insight for organizations, large and small. So it's a sort of a push and shove, I guess you might call it. On the one hand, some fabulous people. On the other hand, we seem to be revisiting the same kinds of issues again and again in HR. And I, I sure hope that we can get past that and sort of move on. So, so many things to follow up on there. <laughs> but uh, on that last point, I'm just curious your own perspective. So do you feel like that's getting better or is it still stuck in the same cul-de-sac? You know, I'll give you a data point that I'd be interested in your view on this as well. I did a whole bunch of teaching over a two or three year, year period at one of the largest pharma companies in the world, great company in many respects. And one of the questions that I asked my HR colleagues that were taking this program 
was how much time do you spend learning about your business? Not HR, not the individual requirements of the manager that you might support or not support, but your company's business, your company's customers, your company's competitors, the technology, etc. And the average answer over about two years with more than a couple of hundred HR leaders, not just HR professionals, but leaders, was that in general, they spent less than an hour a week. Now that's a worrisome and frustrating statistic. It is about eight years old. In your experience, has it changed materially? I think the key word you just said is materially. I think it's changed for sure. I think there is more understanding and aptitude and actual practice of getting deep into the business. I think the leveraging of data and making more you know, data-driven decisions has improved. And the one thing that I think is starting to happen more and more, which you said when you were talking about these companies that did some really interesting things, they're examples because they innovate along the way. Sometimes we can get so busy in the day-to-day and we're just delivering, but you've got to be able to step back and try some things that are different. And that takes, you know, that you've got to create the space and the the support around the, the ability to do that. And I see people doing that. And then they're leading the way because they're able to show a new way is better and you know, and stand behind it. But you got to you gotta be able to create that. And there's some great examples today. I don't know if we've materially <laughs> moved, though. I think that's a tricky one. I love the stories that you just gave, and I love the, the examples that you just provided. There's a particular issue that I struggle with now involved in, in the freelance movement, the freelance revolution, whatever you want to call it. And that is that We face a very interesting challenge, and the best way I can describe it is that we haven't taught HR professionals how to architect a workforce, how to scale a workforce, how to transform a workforce. We've done a good job in training generations of HR professionals to administer the workforce that they have. But... When we look at, for example, the startups that I'm involved with, and we ask the question, who's involved in helping to scale this business from 20 people to 20,000? It's never the HR team. It's almost always the growth team, the technical people, the marketing people, etc. HR has either a need to learn how to do this and establish leadership in that area, or it needs to participate actively and through participating actively build those skills. I see them now as as kind of to the side of that most important situation for a fast growing business, which is how do we scale? How do we build the organization we need to support a much larger customer base? The deep, you know, subject matter expertise areas, you know, one that I think has never really come into his own is organizational design development. You know, it's always been a little bit more about talent or, you know, these other really important areas, but the depth of OD has always lagged. We're very good at the level of the individual. We're not bad at the level of the team. But now when we take a look at the level of the company, other than around issues of culture, but really the, the material challenge of how do we scale, how do we grow an organization to meet its potential, that's something that HR can and should play a huge role in 
A huge part of the future of work is the freelance economy. And you've also been deep in this, researching, writing, speaking about it. Can you share some highlights? Set the table. What's happening currently? Because it's not new, new, but it's, you know, and what's coming and its impact on the future of work and careers? Depending on who you ask, the amount of GDP generated by freelancers in 2021, last year, somewhere between 800 billion and 1.2 trillion. So this is a significant part of the total global workforce. We see about 800 to 1,000 freelance platforms globally, including those in beta. And I think we've invested, depending on whether I have my numbers right, somewhere between two and $300 billion in freelance-related platforms over the last couple of years. If you go to a McKinsey report, they will tell you that they expect 500 million professionals on freelance platforms by 2030. And that's tremendously important, not only here in the US and other developed economies, but when you really think about what these platforms are doing, they're connecting individuals with opportunity that wouldn't be available to those individuals in many of the developing countries where they found themselves born, raised, educated, etc. And so whereas there may not be a tremendous opportunity for technical professionals currently in the AI space in Pakistan, we know that Pakistani AI experts have tremendous opportunities working remotely and delivering value in the US, in the EU, etc. So we, we know that this is a tremendous tool to reduce inequality that happens accidentally as a function of where you happen to be born. The other data points I find fascinating. 40% of our workforce here in the US are what I call freelance light. 40% of professional employees here in the US have a side gig. And think about the implications of, of having a side gig. They're learning the confidence and competence of building a business. And that changes everything, Mary, because mm -hmm. suddenly they're, they're not beholding <laughs> to their organizations. They've got options. And when we mm -hmm. talk about the great resignation, I believe that it's misnamed. We are talking about the great awakening of entrepreneurial potential by these individuals or solopreneurial potential for these individuals that wasn't available to folks who weren't able to have a side gig in prior generations. It forces a change in how organizations need to respond and behave towards them. It forces a change in what they expect from their organizations, their impatience in remaining in organizations that don't give them what they want and their demands on managers to give them more than a colonial, if I may call it that, relationship. Is it the majority of people, it's in addition to something more formal, traditional, or it's really awakening people to want to just really move into more full-time, you know, I want to run my own business and do my own thing? There are five categories. I'll just talk about two or three. One, of course, are people that need to get a job or need to do something in between jobs. Another, of course, are people that are solopreneurs. They want to do their own thing. They really do enjoy their craft. They're not interested in growing a business, but they're interested in doing their thing either part-time or full-time. 
And then there's about, if I remember the data correctly, about 18% of freelancers who are really interested in growing a business, growing more than their own work, more than they can do themselves. So what we, what we know is that that's part of it. But in addition to that, what we know is, is that these entrepreneurial or solopreneurial interests, needs, passions are not only for Gen Zs and Millennials. 30% of the freelancers currently operating in the U.S. are 50 years of age or older. These are people that are not only freelancers by necessity, but rather freelancers by choice. And so we're, we're really seeing a, a wave, to go to your earlier question, this is a wave that's washing over people of, of all kinds, types, and interests. And what we would also find is that if we think about the notion of a freelancer, which is an independent professional, simply called an independent professional, not the same as somebody who does valuable work kind of as a task rabbit or walking dogs or doing errands, etc. These are fully vetted professionals, certified, qualified, educated professionals who decided to work on their own. And what we know is that that population is growing. We also know that 87% recent data of full-time employees said, I would be interested in becoming a freelancer if we could deal with three problems. Problem one is income volatility. I need to know I have a certain base of income in order to survive, feed my family, etc. Second is, I'm reluctant to lose some of the valuable benefits that I get from being an employee, like learning and development, like the ability through a full-time salary to get a mortgage, etc., etc. And the third is, I'm worried about the loneliness of working as a freelancer. What is absolutely true is that through platforms, through these marketplaces, we can solve all of those problems. We can provide income smoothing and factoring to people to give them a basic income. We know that these platforms are expected and the best are providing learning and development continued growth opportunities for these folks. And loneliness is a problem we're all dealing with these, mm. these days in the in the remote world. But, but maybe you feel connected to the some community within the platform too. Exactly. And many communities are becoming much more aggressive about the meetups, about the opportunities given for people to get together. What about other benefits, though, like the healthcare side of things? You know, Absolutely. that's a big and deal. It is a big deal. And we know that governments around the world, and the U.S. is lagging here, but around the world, what we're trying to do is solve that problem extra the job environment. Mm. I mean, that's stuff that we really need to provide through the Obama plan, etc. Mm -hmm. we're, we're less and less dependent on organizations to provide those basic healthcare requirements. Now, tell us about the actual jobs and the work that's available for freelance. Is that changing a lot? Because it used to be only certain kinds of jobs. That landscape must be changing quite a bit. It is hard to find a, a profession that doesn't have a freelance community as part of it. One of the reasons why we had such good luck in developing, and it was luck as well as intelligence, building the vaccines that were needed for pandemic COVID-19 is because we had platforms like CollabTree in the UK and LifeSci Hub in the US, which were providing research scientists and pharmaceutical project managers for exactly this kind of work. 
Singapore Air hires part-time freelance pilots. These are not pilots that are secondary quality. These are outstanding pilots that have decided that they want to work in a slightly different way. We know that there's a tremendous communities in three key areas. One is technology, and that's sort of the best known. Everything from web development to design and development to full stack folks to AI, machine learning, and robotics. We also know that there's a large community of agency disruptors that don't have a very good name right now. They don't have a good category heading right now, but they are people that have left agencies and are marketing specialists, advertising specialists, PR, copy writers, photographers, videographers, etc. And we know that a third major category is the independent management consultants, very large platforms like Catalant in the US, very large platforms in the UK like Talmix, Comatch and, and Malt in Europe, etc. And then a wide, as I said before, a wide variety of other professions, everything from architects to rocket scientists to advertisers to painters to you name it. Technology has made it possible for us to disconnect the work that people do to the location they're in. And that has created an opening for so many new areas of freelancing. And you had mentioned earlier all these platforms in the whole space connects individuals with opportunities. And I was reading recently about the team collaborations in this. I am so curious about this. You know, this is Jay-Z's VC arm and Adam Grant that is freelance teams. So tell us about that, because I, I don't know if these folks know each other and are operating as a team and they're being, you know, connected or talent is being matched and here's a team. You are pointing to some very important stuff. In fact, the team orientation in freelancing has been around for about five years. And you're, you're exactly right when you say, so do they just kind of throw people together and hope it'll work? And the answer is, in the beginning, yes, they were doing it and it didn't work very well. <laughs> and we know, we know that putting a team together is a little more complicated than assembling a group of people and hoping it'll work out. Companies like Contra.com, companies like Vicoland in Germany, companies like ProTeams in Denmark, in addition to the ones that, that you've mentioned, and Comet in France are all examples of organizations that have done a good job of the science of putting teams together. And Vicoland is an interesting example because they're Frankfurt, Germany, and what they've done is create what they call virtual organizations, virtual companies, VICOs, where people come together, actually build these teams, work together over time, establish the kinds of relationships that make those teams work. And that seems to be a much stronger methodology for getting things done. The concept makes a lot of sense that the future, the freelance future, isn't just about individuals. You know, it's across the board teams coming together. But that, to your point, it's going to take a lot of transformation around, you know, I think about how we're all still having the conversation about space and whether people need to be tethered back to an office and hybrid and all of that. 
And to your point about HR and others, you know, all functions, managing a blended workforce and a virtual workforce and a increasingly work from anywhere global workforce, that's a really different animal. It is. It's a very important thing. And right now, on the corporate side, we need to do a better job. We did a global survey, the first truly global survey of, of freelancers last year in collaboration with the University of Toronto, where, where I went to school, and arranged a partnership of 77 of these platforms to get about 2,000 freelancers to talk to us through a survey of, of what they experienced. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting was that only 45% of freelancers described their clients as sophisticated in working with freelancers, which means a majority of companies currently need a little bit of help in terms of being a good partner. And I'll give you the six things that we found through the research that good companies need to do if they're going to partner with, with freelancers. One is they just need a clear philosophy of what they're going to do. And by clear philosophy, the notion is, are we only using these people when we absolutely have to? Are we actually trying to build broader capability? Do we want partnerships for the long term? Many companies are building what we call white label platforms to maintain relations with existing groups of freelancers they feel good about. Second, companies need to do a very good job of, of performance management contracting with freelancers. Most of us hated performance evaluations. And if you take a look at a freelancer, freelancers need them. They need them because I need to look good for my last job in order to get my next job. So I want you to evaluate me. I want you to give me feedback. I want to improve. But you also have to make sure that the deliverables are clear, that the scope is well-defined, that the milestones are established, and companies have some challenges around that. Third, very important that managers, project managers, particularly young project managers, understand how to work with freelancers. They are not subordinates. They are peers. It's a collaboration, not a subordination. And, and very hard, particularly for some young project managers to understand how that works. Fourth, while they're working in your organization, Treat them as if they're part of your organization. Don't give them a different color badge, as an example. Don't tell them they can only eat in certain cafeterias and not other cafeterias. Don't tell them they can't walk from one meeting to another without an escort. But do you think on that point, is it because of all of our fears in the legal, you know, whatever, around contractors, some of that still holds and we're treating Absolutely. the freelance partners as if they're contractors? Absolutely. And, and we, and oh, and by the way, I think we the... can treat contractors. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. That's a lot of That's room exactly, there. <laughs> exactly. I think that we err on the side of caution. And the consequence of that is we sometimes marginalize the yes. freelancer. Yeah. I think we over rotate on the legal considerations yes. sometimes. And I believe that completely. Two other things that, that a good client company does. One is it does a good job of understanding what jobs freelancers should do and what jobs they shouldn't. There are some areas where I just don't have access to the IP. I shouldn't be involved. There are some areas where I don't really have the relationships because I'm new to an organization and I'm going to need some help in order to establish those. So give me the jobs that I can do well. Don't give me jobs that cause me to fail. And the last thing is 
treat me with respect and pay me on time. And what we know is that while enterprises very often do a good job of paying on time, they don't always. And you and I both remember situations where a consultant would call us and say, gee, I haven't gotten paid. And they said, well, you didn't put in the right the right number in your invoice, or you didn't call it a number three instead of a number two. We'll send it to you in the next 30 days. Freelancers need to be paid because they need to live. And the more we can treat them with that sort of basic respect, the better. The last point around that is I learned a lot in my very first experience as an HR consultant dealing with freelancers. I learned it by doing one of the last projects I did with the RBL group. And the project was a strategy study for a very large pharma company. And the CEO and the head of HR asked me the question at the end of the project. So what have you learned that surprised you? And I said, 30% of your workforce doesn't work for you. You don't know them and you apparently don't care about them. And that's a problem. And their reaction was, what? They had no idea. They had no idea. So we really have the challenge long term of something you said earlier, which I think was very smart. And that is the future is building flexible, blended workforces that allow us the agility that we need to make change at the same time as it allows us the stability to continue to work together in a, in a more collaborative way. We're doing a good job on the stability. We're not doing a good job on the blended flexible side, the agility side, to make sure that we have the, the resources, the expertise, the skills that we need and may not need forever. We may not just need it for this project, but let's make it easy to get it. Mm, brilliant. I know people who, when you say side gig, they do many things and it equals 100 or 200, you know, it equals whatever capacity they have. But I also know some people in younger, early career, but they're doing a full-time role and side gigs. And I'm thinking, but also some companies don't allow that today, you know, or that's an older mindset of, hey, if you work for me 40 hours or whatever you sign up for full-time, I don't want you working for anybody else. So is that changing as well? Yes, it's changing for a couple of reasons. One is because literally 40% of the workforce has a side gig. Think of it this way. There are about 100 million people in the current U.S. workforce, about 100 million more or less. 40 million of these individuals or 40 million of the families have a business on the side of the full-time job that they do for their company. So let me ask you this. Companies like Unilever are playing with this and they're offering employees more project-based work that lets them kind of go in and out of assignments. And so they're, I think, trying to make what you might want to then go do with some other company possible within their own culture and workforce. Is that happening more and more? And do you think that would sort of alleviate the need for the side gig? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, the side gigs will continue. And they'll continue for several reasons. One is they'll continue because people are looking for extra money. They're continuing because this is a transition strategy for individuals to move from something to, to something else. Or it was a, a hobby that just turned into a, a business. And in any of those cases, what we're seeing in, in Europe is 
a tremendous willingness on the part of organizations to say, the rest of your time is your time. You owe us 40 hours. It's tougher in the U.S. because we've always been more flexible, <laughs> if I may call it that way, around our expectations, which is so many organizations said, yeah, the 40 is a minimum, but we're really hoping you're 50 or 60. And how could you do this other stuff? But at the end of the day, my reaction is what a wonderful gift these individuals are giving to their organizations by having increased competence, by having increased confidence, by thinking more as a business person, by demonstrating better time management, by demonstrating greater productivity. Heaven, this is a gift that ought to go on giving. But what about, I think today, the side gigs still need to stay in the non-competitive space? For sure. It's, I mean, is that and, fair? Because I, I don't Oh, no, know no. It's, abs it's absolutely fair. And it doesn't always happen, but it's absolutely fair. There's a category called expert networks where this becomes challenging. You've heard of GLG, Garson Lehman Group, and they're probably the best. They're now a billion dollar in revenue company that provides experts for short bursts of insight. So you can imagine they're, they're primarily serving consulting firms, private equity firms, investors, etc. There it gets a little queasy, if we can say it in terms of my expertise, but platforms are doing a better and better job of managing that balance. And there's more expectation on the part of the expert networks themselves to not fall on the wrong side mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of integrity. Are there any companies that come to mind that are really out in front, as you say, you know, thinking about the architecting and the managing of this blended workforce, and they're, they're a little bit further ahead and get it. Any that come to mind? Yes, I'll give you two. One is something you mentioned. Unilever is in a great many ways, a kind of a head ahead, <laughs> if I may, of so many. When I talk to my colleagues in LATAM, I hear Unilever is is using their work. When I talk to people in Europe, Unilever is using their work. When I talk to people in the US. So they've clearly gotten the, the notion that a workforce that is richer in terms of the sources of talent that they bring together makes sense. I'll give you another example, which, which I feel badly about these days because of, of the war in Ukraine. Rosneft does a fabulous job, Gazprom, does a fabulous job of managing freelancers. And one of the things that Gazprom has, has done is build a, an internal marketplace of 38,000 freelancers around the world, not only that they use regularly, but it's also gone to their employees and said, you are welcome to be a part-timer as long as, as you said, it's not competitive. The challenge, of course, is the war in Ukraine is such a horrible, awful thing that I feel very badly that most of what Gazprom's innovators, a guy named Nikolai Dolgov and others have produced will be lost in that maelstrom. But what we're also seeing in the consulting firms, whether it's the big four and the bigger three, I don't know what we call them any longer, but a company like PwC, EY, KPMG, Accenture, more and more the expectation is that a very significant fraction of, of total resourcing costs will be freelancers, simply because they need those very specific, rare skill sets 
that don't make sense to be part of the organization on a continuing basis, but we sure want access to them when, when we need it. So John, I'm going to pivot a minute. If you look back, was there a time where you can recall a pivot that you made personally and a lesson or a big learning that came out of that? Maybe you changed paths, you, you know, you go back and you say, wow, this pivot or this lesson or learning really made a difference. Mm, It's a great question. I have benefited from the chance to work with extraordinary people. Mary, by the way, you're one of them. So I'm going to just make you I'll cut a this little part. uncomfortable for you. <laughs> don't, don't cut this part. But I've, I've, had, I've had the opportunity to work with some really amazing folks. Herb Shepard, one of the founders of NTL and, and one of the great names in, in organization development. John Aikett, who ran Exxon Chemical in Europe and was a wonderful mentor. Shelley Seifert who was the head of HR at National City Corp and my favorite boss ever, ever, ever. I'm truly in love with her. And she she was the epitome of somebody who got HR and blended it with a wonderful sense of business. She's now managing a bank as CEO in Missouri, I think, and it's doing very, very well. And the last, I, I guess, would be people like Dave Ulrich, people like Marshall Goldsmith, people like Norm Smallwood, who I've had a chance to know as contemporaries and who've always taught me a a ton. I was just very lucky to be in the right place at the right time, in the right generation, when this organization development stuff and HR general. I think you're being a bit modest here, John. (laughs) I, I would say you're right. I mean, luck can often play a role, but when you were talking earlier about, you know, all the advances, especially early on, eight jobs in 10 years, even though I was a bit fast, but what was it, if you think about it, about you, about your own mindset, your own behaviors, what contributed to, you think, along the way, your ability to grow and learn and and to go where you wanted, to achieve what you wanted towards your aspirations? Thank you for asking. I'll tell you one story. So I graduated with a doctorate from the University of Toronto, I think I was 24 or something like that. And I, I was always a fast student, not necessarily bright, but fast. And had a year where I was working part-time at a place called Rohrer, Hibbler, and Replockel. It's still around. I think it's a leadership evaluation firm at this point or something like that. But that was just, that was just a fabulous experience. And through that, I got this job at Imperial Law, which is Exxon in Canada. And I if I look back on my 10 years, I think I did one thing very, very well. And I'll tell you the story if you don't mind. I had been there for about four years, had a pretty good reputation, and it was a period of, of sort of dismal economics. And Exxon in Canada, Imperial, I was thinking about doing its very first layoff ever. Even during the Depression, they had not laid off people. They traded farm products for gasoline and stuff. They, they felt this commitment to Canada, which I thought was beautiful. And I, I didn't think that I wanted to be part of a layoff. And I thought that I didn't want to just be silent. And so I, I did a whole bunch of research on the history of company, wrote a four-page paper on alternatives to a layoff, and started to walk it around. Now, you got to understand, I'm 28 years old. Um, sort of at the very bottom of middle management, very bottom of middle management. 
And I get a call from my boss who says, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing. And he said, I just got a call from the HR board member, Tom Thompson, wondering what you're doing. And he asked me if you and I would join him in his office in the next hour. And I said, okay. And I didn't know what to expect. And Tom, Tom Thomas, who became a bit of a mentor to me later on, said, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I think there are alternatives to a layoff. And I think that I can produce value well in excess of the layoff using organization development techniques. And he said, tell me about them. And I, I did. Essentially, it's, it's crowdsourcing ideas, right? I mean, it's, it's what GE, right? And all of the work that you were doing at Workout eventually sort of turned into real science. And he looked at me and said, are you willing to bet your job on this? And I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, you're in charge. We found the $50 million they needed. And I got a, I got a two-level promotion and somebody decided that, that I had potential to be a business leader. And if I wanted to be on the board of, of Imperial Org within the next 20 years, I should take a job as the general manager of the EPDM rubber business, which is EPDM makes rubber roofs and windshield wipers. That's what that stuff makes. And I got had a conversation with the head of executive development saying, are you ready for this? And I looked at him and went, I love dinner. His name was John. I love dinner. I love you. I really appreciate it. I don't want to be a general manager of rubber roofs. I like doing what I'm doing. He goes, are you sure? Omar, no. <laughs> but it's a pretty good guess. I am so glad that I lacked the fear that I had courage or commitment or whatever it was to do what I did and, and sort of have that opportunity to find the money and to help the company. And then secondly, I feel so grateful that I didn't become the manager of the rubber roof business because I've sure liked my career as it's been. And you've been brilliant at it. John, thank you for sharing that. One last one. What's a piece of career advice, if there is one, or a tip or something that you might share that has served you or stayed with you through your career? Hmm. I will give you one that I learned from one of my kids. I have two wonderful sons that are both far more successful than I am. One's 40, one's 37. They're also a lot better looking than I am. And one of them was thinking about a new job. And I said, how do you think about that? And he's been a successful guy. And he said, you know, in your generation, you follow the industry. In my generation, we follow the talent. And I think that is brilliant. That the idea as you're thinking about where you wanna go in the future, where do the really, really smart and admirable people go? And go there. Don't worry about the industry right now. If you're following that concept, they'll create the industry. That's something I learned just recently, a couple of weeks ago, but I've been carrying around in my head and, and glad to share it. And you're clearly following that now. This is so exciting what's ahead. Thank you. Thank you for sharing so much with us. I've been so impressed. You don't have, people can't see this, you don't have a single note in front of you and all those stats <laughs> and everything you've shared. That's so impressive. I've learned so much and I'm oh, really thanks. jazzed and excited about this and, and thank you. the picture you've painted and all that you've shared, but also sharing so personally. John, thank you so much. Oh, I, I'm so grateful for being part of the thank you, Mary. 
I've been eager to be on this show for years. Oh, really? Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Thank you.